0: Well, our scripture reading today is from Ephesians five eighteen through to the end of chapter 6. It's a bit of a long one, so bear with me. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. However, let each one of you love his wife's wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bond servant or is free, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and put in. The, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one As I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. It's also my pleasure this morning to introduce Heath. Uh, Heath is an elder at Christ City East Van. He's also an urban chaplain on the downtown east side. He's a, a good brother and a friend. He also became a granddad just two days ago, which is awesome. And uh, it's, it's our pleasure to have Heath preach for us this morning as the Van Rukels are on holiday. Uh, so thank you, brother. Well, it is my
1: joy to be with you this morning. And as, yeah, as Gareth mentioned, I am part of Christ City East Vancouver, an elder there. And it is um, early on before pandemic, I had the privilege of coming here and being with you. So it is good to see many of you who I have not seen in a long time. So before I get carried away, let's begin in prayer. God, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, this text that Gareth read in its entirety is an amazing, beautiful piece of scripture, Lord. And we confess that we don't understand all of it and we have troubles with it. So Lord, I ask that you give us clarity, that you give us wisdom, and you give us humility as we look at this text this morning. Amen. So my wife had six great uncles. All of them went to World War II. Now, of those six great-uncles, two of them, there was, they were a set of twins. And these two crazy guys became sappers. Now, a sapper was one of the most dangerous jobs during World War II. It was literally a mobile, you know, bomb disposal unit. So these brothers, uh, they served on the Italian front near the end of the war. And as the occupying force retreated, they heavily booby-trapped every town, every city, and every village as they left. So as the liberating force advanced, these guys would very literally encounter a minefield. And it was their job to go in front of the you know liberating force and to dismantle, disfuse, uh, deal with all the landmines, all of the booby traps. You see, it took nerves of steel, it took a cool head, and a head, or rather, and a hand that was steadier. It was the sapper's job to put his life on the line so that those following could pass in safety. The danger was threefold. Either you made a mistake in the diffusing of the bomb and you blew yourself up. You died. Now, also to to increase that, if the sapper missed something, somebody else died. All of this happening while somebody was trying to shoot at you as you were doing this. Now, our text this morning is a veritable landmine of stuff in 2,000 years of Christian history. We've got... Uh, landmine after landmine after landmine as I go through the floor. Um, speaking of booby traps, uh, it's, it's difficult. So this morning, with great humility, I have to dismantle cultural landmines and booby traps in this text. I have to diffuse minds of unbelief that have occurred, that have popped up over time. My job is to not blow myself up or to blow you up. I, like the sapper, need humility I need nerves of steel, and likewise, I also need hands steadied by the gospel to walk us through this text. Now, when Brandt, he said, hey, Heath, would you preach for me on Ephesians chapter 6 at the end of June? And I'm like, look, absolutely I would. So I do a, some initial study on the armor of God, and I'm ready to preach out of that, and he calls me and says, Heath, could you please focus on the submission texts? So this morning I drew the short straw. No, I'm just kidding. Um, So this morning I have a choice. Do I cut the green wire or do I cut the red wire? Do I blow myself up or do I blow you up? Well, as with the, joking aside, as with the rest of our Ephesians series here that we've been going through, um, there is not enough time, as you saw in that text, there's not enough time to mind the beautiful things that are occurring in that text. So I cannot talk about the armor of God without first dealing with this interesting bit of Paul's words to wives and husbands, to children and parents, to slaves and masters. I cannot exhort you to a greater hope in Christ without dealing with this idea of mutual submission. So this morning I will highlight and focus on the text, wives and husbands, and doing so, create an archetype so that we can look at the whole text and then we can actually deal with this thing that our culture struggles with. And that is submission in general. So with that in mind, I would like to look at two things this morning. I would like to to look at what does Paul actually say to us here? And from that, what does it actually mean for us? What are the implications for us in this ever-increasing post-paternal world? So turn back with me to chapter 5, starting at verse 18. I'll read it again. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and theref- and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I can't see you on the live stream, but I'm sure most of you, you've got your hackles up at this point. This is a difficult thing to say. It's a difficult thing for us to hear. And in our culture, oh, this is hard, isn't it? I just, we just need to acknowledge that and go, yeah, that's hard. To be clear, it's difficult for me to hear, and it's difficult for me as a middle-aged, fat, white guy who just became a grandpa who celebrated 25 years of marriage. This is difficult for me as well. In our progressive society, personal autonomy expressed as rampant freedom is paramount, isn't it? This is our universal underlying cultural belief. I would even go as far as to say that that our faithfulness, faithfulness to this ideology expresses a non-theistic religious belief. Therefore, when our culture hears the word submission, what does it hear? What does it hear? It hears violation. Violation of personal freedom. When we hear submission, we conjure in our minds issues of inferiority, exploitation, spousal abuse, slavery, manipulation, Therefore, this text, and particularly, you know, the issue of submission in this text, and others like it, at best, it should be something that we fight against. At worst, something to just deem as irrelevant, of a past-gone, you know, era that is not useful for us anymore. Hear me clearly. Hear me clearly. Unchecked, abusive, oppressive patriarchy is not biblical. Husbands, fathers and slave owners throughout history have grossly have grossly misinterpreted these texts and, and for selfish gain for selfish gain they've corrupted its true meaning misuse of power and unbelief has led to all the affirmations mentioned distortions of this text in our mind the root issue is this in our reaction to those abuses we place our, ourselves We place ourselves in our shared authoritative cultural belief as paramount over this text. We actively suppress it. We suppress its meaning and the profound, beautiful truth that Paul is actually trying to express here. Now, let's be honest. Deep down, our disgust at the very idea of submission, it betrays our idolatry of personal autonomy as the ruling narrative of our lives. That's hard for me to say. Now, some of you may know that I lived and worked as a missionary, uh, if we can still say that anymore, for a better part of a decade in an ultra-left-wing Marxist anarchist neighborhood in Athens, Greece. Go say that five times fast. I bet there is not a place in this world that is more against patriarchy and submission than my neighborhood of Exarchia. So as I would walk around my neighborhood... There were a couple of ideological slogans that were painted in graffiti everywhere, almost on every surface, to the point where it it was so normal to see these. So the first slogan was this, No God, No Master. No God, No Master. Now this statement defiantly, fist in the air, says that we are free. We do not need religion. We do not need the state. We do not need a concept of God to control us or our behavior. God is therefore the meth of the masses. Behind this slogan is a belief that we are free. Ultimately free and autonomous individuals. And therefore, we, do, we know what's best for ourselves, don't we? We do not submit to any authoritative structure whatsoever. Because power and authority is always used to corrupt. Every single time. It's used to oppress, suppress, always. Yeah. That's the climate I lived in. To prove that that's not just there, but it's here. Yesterday, I decided, you know, as a proud grandfather, I, I purposely been off Facebook and almost social media for a long time, but I purposely go on Facebook, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the whole world that I'm a grandpa. First thing that pops up, I have this LGBTQ friend. He's an activist. Before I even get to post a picture of my new granddaughter... I see this flashing sign with a colorful background saying Christianity equals control. And I confess, I went down the rabbit trail and I looked at all the comments. Not good. See, this no God, no master ideology is alive and well in our culture right here, right now. Now, the next phrase that was painted everywhere in my neighborhood was was a little more subtle, probably more nefarious, but expresses much of the same sentiment. And it says like this, I can even picture the graffiti on the wall of my apartment building. It says, as long as, the sheep's, as long as the sheep bleats, wolves will howl. As long as the sheep bleat, the wolves will howl. Now, this expresses a sentiment that, that you alone are responsible for your freedom. In your autonomy, you have to stand up against those who oppress you. Because if you don't, they're just going to oppress you. You have to stop being weak. You have to stop being a sheep and you have to fight against tyranny, against oppressive authoritative structures. You have to uphold freedom by your own hand. In other words, you have to actively oppress the oppressors. Yeah, run that through your grid. Just to be clear, just to be clear, on my own, of my own devices, in my heart of hearts, I deeply resonate with these statements. There's a reason why I live there and thrive there. You see, I, I, I deeply resonate, and I want to fight against injustice. I want, to, I want to free people from oppression and slavery. My heart without God is stirred to the core by these statements. See, I, just like you, have to answer the question, what do I do with submission? How? How do I submit to God? How do I submit to spouses? How do I submit to my parents? How do I submit to masters, jobs, jobs, bosses? And how do I submit to church leadership? You see, how can I do that when authority? I've seen it, only seen it used corruptly. I've been stabbed in the back so many times. You know, Gareth says he's got a summer and I've got stabs in the back. See, This question is what we have to grapple with this morning when we deal with this text. How do I protect the thing that I value the most? My personal autonomy. You see, I bring this up because, as I said earlier, the root of this issue, the primary thing that we have to deal with is is this. is that we do not want to submit. We do not want to free ourselves from anything else we want We want freedom to choose who we are, what we are, and how we act in life. So I'll state it bluntly. I think many of you are just like me. You're functionally like my anarchist friends. Your fists in the air, and you're defiantly proclaiming an intimate belief that this idea of personal autonomy, that's who you really are. And we've just overlaid a veneer of Christianity over the top. This is exactly the opposite of what Paul is trying to say to us in this text. So did I just cut the green wire or the red wire? (sighs) Breathe, relax. That was a joke. So what is Paul actually saying to us here? You see, Paul has spent, as you've looked, the entirety of the book of Ephesians breaking down barriers. Has he not? He's broken down barriers of race, of gender, of class. Paul proclaims that God in Christ creates a new humanity. What was once separated, what was once far off, what was once hostile towards each other has actually now been unified in Jesus Christ by his death, burial, and resurrection. Look at me. Look. Turn back to chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. That is profound. In in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, we read this. It says, And he, God, put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In chapter 3, verse 6, we see this. It says, The mystery is that the Gentiles, in other words, the foreigners, the aliens, the people who are different than us, they are fellow heirs, members of, of the same body and are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If we are to believe what Paul says here is true, if we are members of the same body, why would he here in our text create new barriers, create barriers of hostility between genders, between, you know, ages, and between job descriptions? See, Paul has moved throughout the entirety of this letter. He says, initially, he says, this is who Jesus is. Then he says, this is what he's done for you. And then he says, this is who you once were. And then he says, this is how, who you are now through Jesus in his spirit. And, fa- and now in chapters five and six, we actually get to this application point. It says, this is how you walk in a manner worthy of your calling. This is what you're called to. This is what a new life in Christ looks like. This is the outworking that I've been proclaiming. Paul grounds his action, his, his call to action, rather, on a life changed by Jesus, full of his spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, says this. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So now back to our text in five eighteen to 21. Do not get drunk with wine, for it is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get outworking of this worship is this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul grounds our interaction with each other in the family as a life changed by Jesus. He makes us one body. Our resulting actions are empowered by the Spirit and a result of which is submission to one another. Submission to one another, hear me clearly, submission to one another is a gift wrought by Jesus on the cross. I'll say that again. Submission to one another is a gift wrought by Jesus, his work on the cross Submitting to one another is an outward sign, an outward form of a worship, of a changed heart filled with his spirit. That's what this text is leading through, worship, 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 submit. It doesn't, it's, that is an outward practicality, an outward application of worship. An interesting thing to note here, I'm going to nerd out on you for a second, is there's this Greek verb that is rendered submit here in 21. It's in a, it's in a middle voice, if I could say it that way, and it denotes a voluntary nature, Paul says here, look, be filled with the Spirit. Sing. Make melody. Give thanks. Voluntarily submit to one another because you're all equal in one body in Christ. Voluntarily submit to one another out of a heart of worship to Jesus, the one who by his death, burial, and resurrection, by him, he he restores all things for all time. It is from this posture this outworking of worship, full of the spirit that Paul turns to the household and says, wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, masters. See, out of reverence to Christ as an expression of the gospel, this is what submission is, Christ city. Paul admonishes wives to submit to husbands. But the other side of the coin, Paul talks to husbands and he says, look, It seems like an unequal kind of thing, but Paul says to husbands, says, husbands, love your wives. Don't lord it over. It doesn't say lord over your wives. Love your wives. That might might look divided, but but Paul calls husbands to something greater than what we're accustomed to, and he says this in 5 verses 25 through 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. He's talking about Jesus here, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his, his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Therefore, however, let each of you love his wife as himself and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Paul grounds this exhortation to both wives and to husbands, in a relationship of Jesus and his church. He He combines the two as a visible metaphor. He says, look, this concept of one flesh, that's in Genesis 2, is a picture of Jesus' sacrificial death for you. His burial and resurrection simplifies that the two become one, and we are one body. Husbands are to treat and to love their wives, sacrificially and selflessly. Paul says that love, that love, is a living metaphor of the gospel to those around you. A true and embodied example of giving your life for the benefit of the other. This is a metaphor of grace. This is a metaphor of mercy. And when our polyamorous world looks at you, husbands, when it looks at you, they should see your singular sacrificial love, devotion, and care for your wife. They should see Jesus through you in the way you treat your wife. And wives likewise. When the whole world screams the opposite, when they look at you and they see you submit, not out of financial need, not out of coercion or security, not out of compulsion or fear, when you voluntarily sacrifice yourself and and submit to your husband. It's a picture of the relationship that we as the church have to Jesus. That is profound. We have new life in Jesus. As two become one flesh in our marriages, we as the church become the body of Christ, which is the head. Now, as we interact in society in this way, we become an oddity for sure. But we also become a beacon of love, a beacon of stability, a beacon of respect, and a beacon of trust. We portray in our marital relationships, in our submissive relationships, we portray an unattainable security, a freedom that the world is truly longing for. And it is only available through submission in Jesus because he is the only one who is worthy of our submission. I know this to be true because... My wife and I celebrated 25 years of marriage in April. And all of my neighbors who are polyamorous, uh, same-sex couples, all of my neighbors, they are, were both confounded and amazed that we have spent 25 years together and we actually still get along. You see... Our marriage in a strange neighborhood near commercial drive, we actually show love and friendship and faithfulness to each other and the commitment as a couple that's, that's compelling for those around of us. You see, we can submit to one another because I have confidence in Jesus. I have confidence that he is worthy, that he is my back, that, that he wields power perfectly and sacrificially. But if things go south, if for some reason when I submit there's no mutuality, only injustice, I know I have confidence and I have a resolute hope that that if if I get stabbed in the back again, I know that Jesus comes again and he holds justice in his hand. We sang about that earlier. He will judge the living and the dead. See, I can have confidence in a God in Jesus who actually wields power in this way. Now, when I preach this reality to my anarchist friends, the no God, no masters, like, oh, you're a Christian, you're a loser. When I preach this to them, and I articulated that true freedom was actually in submission, and they're like, yeah, whatever. But I said, no, submission to the one who's the only person who has ever wielded power perfectly. And how did He do that? By dying on a cross for you. That was compelling for them. They had never heard that the ultimate God of the universe sacrificed his power and his control and his ability to manipulate and to and to overthrow worlds. He actually submitted so that you can have life in him. That blew their minds. See, freedom eked out of a blind faith in personal autonomy is like a mirage in the desert. It's elusive. It's never satisfying. Paul exhorts us here in all of Ephesians, and specifically in the outworking of this text, he says the only one worthy of our submission is Jesus. And in worship, we submit to one another as a reflection of that. You see, Jesus quite literally died the death that we deserve so that we can have a life that we don't deserve. Let's read first chapter 2, verses 14 to 19. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Now, he's not just talking about man here. He's talking about humanity. So that making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him we have both access in the spirit to the father. So when you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. See, in submission to this Jesus, we receive something far greater than freedom, far greater than personal autonomy. We gain an identity. We gain an acceptance. We gain access to God himself as a son, as a daughter, as part of a community, as a body of an accepted member of the household of God. That is intimate. See, in ancient culture, the household was the source of stability. It was a source of security. If something went wrong in the house, it affected all of society. So it's not a surprise that Paul actually addresses households here as the very source of stability in the world around them. Paul's exhortation here, that's hard in submission, is so that our households, our source of stability, would be found in the work of Jesus Christ. And in that, it would be a metaphor of stability, of love, and acceptance to those around us. Christ City. With this understanding, we can now transition to our second point, and now all of you are like, oh boy, don't worry, it's not that long. See, as of late, I've been rereading this interesting book by Leo Tolstoy. It's a classic text called The Kingdom of God is Within You. It's published in 1894, and interesting, I just, this is just for fluff, the, the subtitle is this, Christianity, not as a mystic religion, but as a whole new theory of life. So in this book, Tolstoy is interacting with this idea, this idea of nonviolence in the face of resist- resistance and opposition um, based out of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5. So Tolstoy here, in this quote, is quoting an American theologian and then he gives this analysis, an analysis of it. So this, this man that he's quoting is a pastor in America and a theologian. And this is what he says. Christ's teaching is of no use because it is inconsistent with our industrial age. Then Tolstoy comments, the teaching is of no use for our industrial age, precisely as though the existence of this industrial age were a sacred fact which ought not to and could not be changed. It is just as though drunkards, when advised how they should be brought to habits of sobriety, should answer that the advice is incompatible with their habit of taking alcohol. And then he says the words that have haunted me for months now. Christ's teaching is useless because if it were carried into practice, life could not go on as present. These words written 130 years ago have stopped me in my tracks. They've rocked me to the core. They've cut me to the very being of who I am. Christ's city for our purposes here this morning. We could... We could actually functionally live in a Christian culture that echoes these words and saying the Bible's teaching are of no use for us because it is inconsistent with a progressive society. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is useless to us because if it were carried into practice, life could not go on as present. Christ City. These These words are an indictment for us as a church as we grapple with how we interact in our post-paternalistic, post-everything world. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do when we functionally served and promoted our own personal autonomy and freedom over the word of God? Christ City, what do we do? Well, in and of ourselves, there's really nothing we can do. It's probably not what you expected me to say. There is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves because we are enslaved to our personal autonomy. We are enslaved to our exaltation of ourselves. But I will tell you the same thing I told my anarchist friends. To find true freedom. To find true freedom, we need to submit to the one who wields power perfectly. The one who set his life aside for you and for me the only one who is worthy of our submission, Jesus Christ. Christ City, in order to have the power to submit to one another, we need to repent of our autonomy and we need to submit to Jesus. And that's not control, that's freedom. See, as a church, in order to change the way we live in a culture in the face of selfish autonomy, as a household of God, we need to obey Paul's teaching here. We must let it change the way we live our lives. In submission, there is new life in Jesus. The perfect one who submitted to his father. He died the death that our autonomy deserves. And we receive a new life in his spirit that we do not deserve. We become part of a family. A beautiful family that is not our own. Through Jesus, we can submit to one another. Through Jesus, we can love sacrificially. Through Jesus, we can, in our households, be a living metaphor of the gospel. We can we can present new life to those who are struggling around us. Christ City, let's pray. God, we humbly come before you, recognizing that we desire life on our terms and in our way. And Lord, we realize that this this text highlights something deep within us that is wrong. So Lord, we ask your forgiveness where there are times when we have said, no, not your way, but my way. So Lord, please forgive us. We thank you for the promise that we have in Jesus as a new life, a new life in you. In this we pray, amen.